is the Mulberry Lane Show. The Mulberry Lane Show. Exclusive interviews, fun, music, celebrities. Your weekend getaway. Now, here's Mulberry Lane, Rachel, Bo, and Ellie Cat. Be a part of the family. Happy Easter weekend. Woo! It's Rachel here with your radio sisters, Bo and Allie, and it's time for the Mulberry Lane Show. That's right. Well, we hope you get your fill of chocolate bunnies, glitter eggs, and a rebirth this weekend. Mm -hmm. That's right. And we hope you get your fill of good music as well. Mm -hmm. We got plenty of that today. Well, let's not wait a second longer. Let's get to those guests. Woo! The Mulberry Lane Show's on Celebrity story songs You're gonna have it going on When we tell you who's stopping by now Well, up first today is Stephen Jenkins of Third Eye Blinds You know hits like Semi-Charmed Kinda Life Semi-Charmed Kinda Life, baby How's it gonna be? Cause I don't care How's it gonna be? And Jumper Jenkins of Third Eye Blind stops by your weekend to talk new music. The album We Are Drugs, and as always, Stephen speaks, writes, and sings his mind. Yes, he does. And sister brag here, but it's not about me, it's about my sister Rachel. Stephen actually says in the interview that he had had 18 radio interviews the day that we talked with him, and he said the question that Rachel asked him was his absolute favorite question of the day. So congrats, Rachel, on digging deep and asking a really stellar question. Thanks, Allie. Okay, what's up next? It's country music legend T.G. Shepard. Keep me on a slow burn. Keep me on a slow now, T.G. Shepard has 21 number one country hits to his name, and today he gets real about life, love, music, hit songs, his friendship with, get this, Elvis. That's right, Allie. And T.G. also talks about his latest album, Legendary Friends and Country Duets, and the amazing recording process. Now, he recorded this album over seven years with legends like Merle Haggard, George Jones, before they passed on. You'll get an awesome perspective from a classic and classy country dude. Mm, you said it. Okay, Bo. Then it's a story of a different kind, a young adult novel by best-selling author Lee Bardugo called Crooked Kingdom. Now this is the second in a duality and it follows Six of Crows, a heist story told from six different point of views. And today you'll get into the mind of the story's creator and since she didn't start her writing career until age 35, you'll love hearing about her winding path that led her to her first best-selling series, The Grisha Trilogy. That's right, Bo, and you guys are going to love her creative advice, no matter what age you are. So we've got some great variety for you guys today, so stick with us for the next hour. Yes, but before we kick things off, Rachel, I understand your son Casey had quite the birthday party this week. Oh yes, it was his ninth birthday and we had it at the Mark, bowling, laser tag, and arcade games. Did things get a little crazy? Yes, when you have 10, 8, and 9-year-old boys, things do get a little crazy, but it got super crazy when it came time to blow out the candles for the cake. Really? I've never had this happen before so you got to tell me if this has happened with any of your kids okay late on us so there were nine candles plus a few of those little sparkler candles that relight 
So everyone screamed the happy birthday song. He blew out the candles and of course the little sparkler ones relit. So then all the boys pretty soon were blowing, trying to get him out until one kid had the brilliant idea to pour his lemonade on the cake to put the flame oh out. Oh my gosh. No, that has never happened before. I think my jaw hit the floor and I'm like, everybody's going to have some soggy cake right now. Oh my gosh. So I take it his parents were not there. Parents were not there. Scott was there and then one other parent was there and I think we all looked at each other like, what, what do we do now? Right. Well, yeah, that is definitely a first, Rachel. Yeah, Casey had a really good birthday with a very soggy cake. Yeah, well... It will not be a soggy show today because we've got some excellent guests. All right. Hang right there. We'll be right here. When you come back, Stephen Jenkins of Third Eye Blind will be right here waiting for you. Keep hanging out with us on the Mulberry Lane Show brought to you by Braddock Finnegan Dermatology. Meet the celebrities on your radio station. Back to the Mulberry Lane Show. Now, here's Mulberry Lane. Well, Stephen Jenkins, lead singer-songwriter of Third Eye Blind, is here to talk new album, We Are Drugs, the single, Cop vs. Phone Girl, and some recent headline stories about the band. Stephen Jenkins on the show today. We are drugs, telling things his way. What a nice entree. Uh, thank you. Great to have you with us. It's a pleasure to be talking with you in Omaha today. Awesome. I'm family in Omaha. You do? I do, yeah. My family's actually like um, Nebraska homesteaders in Fairmont, Nebraska, way back in the day. What name? Homesteaders. Jenkins. Jenkins. Okay. And then we're Swartz, okay. and the very beginning one was uh, Barrett. Okay. We're descended from Freeman homesteaders, so maybe our ancestors knew each other. We can only hope. <laughs> okay. Now, you're known as a songwriter who can address divided political issues with clever lyrics and themic melodies and really get people talking. As an artist, do you take on the issues because it's what's bubbling up inside of you or more because you want to affect change? Solely because it bubbles up inside of me. I, I'm not a, actually a political writer. I don't okay. write for some outward sense. I write solely because something provokes me on an emotional level. And usually that's about relationships or impact of friends or okay. trying to like sort of figure out my identity in the context of the times we live in. But sometimes it's more outward things, and that's when those things become political. But it's always from something with emotional impact. So now when you sit down to write, when an issue touches you, do you just run with it or does it take a while to figure out how to put it in the framework of a song? You know, it could be a dark subject, but yet with some uplifting melody. Well, I think that's what Coppers and Phone Girl was. I mean, I think it's ultimately a very hopeful song. The chorus is really about how things should be. Uh And the verses are looking at the true reality of events as they are. How long did that song take for you to write? Coppers and Phone Girl was, I saw this assault on a girl in a school by a campus security officer. Mm -hmm. And I was so shocked by it by so many people that I started writing an op-ed piece. But then I never finished it. And I looked at the notes one day and I had my little small party Martin with me and I picked up my guitar and I looked at the notes and sang the song out. And it all went pretty quickly. Even your op-ed was written almost like a song then. No, it's written like notes. <laughs> that became a song. Is that the first time you've turned that op-ed piece into a song? Yep. Okay. That's the very first time I've ever done that. Cool. Yeah. 
singer-songwriter Stephen Jenkins of the band Third Eye Blind talking about their single Cop vs. Phone Girl off the new album We Are Drugs here on the Mulberry Lane Show. Okay, now you guys have been in the headlines for saving some kids that were being swept away by a rip current while you were surfing. So what happened there? Well, we're just courageous heroes, you know, when there was a gigantic shark out there. The shark was in the belly of a whale, and we had to dive into all of it. And uh, we were just surfing, and there were some kids, and they got stuck in a rip current, and they didn't really know how to handle a rip current, so they got freaked out, and they were asking for help and waving their hands around. We were like, why are these kids this far out? And we realized that they had gotten swept out. Okay. We just paddled over and sit here, get on my board, and uh, we pushed him in. Okay. And then uh, I guess we were being like, you know, paparazzi on the beach because <laughs> um, somebody took a picture of it, and that's when it went viral. But yeah. the best part about it, though, is that the lifeguard there sent me a, a hoodie, okay. and, you know, it says lifeguard, and it looks awesome. You wearing that in your concerts now? I'm not, but I think I might wear it around my house at some point. <laughs> okay. Okay, now I'm intrigued about what inspired the artwork for the album. It was the silent film? Yeah, so um, so I just want to tell you that I've done, this is my 18th radio interview today. Okay. It's radio interview day, and that's my favorite question the whole day. So, okay. I'm thoroughly intrigued by this. Great. Here comes the answer. So, the song Cop vs. Phone Girl, that's surreal to put these two things together. It's right. absurd. Yes. And the other songs on the record are all really about personal relationships, about how we're kind of evolving into a post-patriarchal, post-feminist dominant age okay. and how we navigate that. A lot of the things that are going on in that record. So again, it's things being put together, um, like a song called The Company of Strangers, it's a song on this record. Even though it's about more of an internal landscape, it has a surrealist aspect to it. Okay. So the title, We Are Drugs, comes from a line from Dolly. He says, I don't do drugs, I am drugs. Okay. Yeah, we are drugs. So that's really from Dolly. And then the sign for Third Up Line is called The Falling Man, and that comes from a Dolly tarot card. And then the album cover is from a Bunuel surrealist film from the 20s called Ancien Andalou, which means Andalusian dog. Okay. And it's this crazy, crazy film where this woman has her eyes slit open um, with a and razor blade. And the goo comes out. And, yeah, and the goo comes out, right. The best part. It's like the gooey center of those like flourless chocolate cakes. It's like that, but different. Okay. Anyway, so it's about sort of opening your eye to a new reality is, is the idea of it. And because we're third eye blind, mm. um, the cover is really influenced by that. Okay. Pretty cool. So now, yeah. also, the artists that did the film, you know, their whole motivation, not making fun of society, but pushing this film in its surrealistic way to make people almost dislike what they were doing, but it ended up being embraced as art. So, you know, the concept behind the album that you were writing to, does that have anything in common with the motivations of those artists versus you? No, I think it was much more about the visual It's more the that. visual and the uh, eye. Their motivations are there and mine are mine. They're, they're uh -huh. different. But the Pixies also love that song. So the song Debaser mm -hmm. is about Ancien Andalou. Okay. So he's like, saw me a movie, ah ha ha ha, slice it up eyeballs, ah ha ha ha. Oh. And then the chorus goes, Shen, I am moved. He sings Shen, so they sing, that's, that's the song. Okay. You know the song by the Pixies? I am aware of that song. Yeah. Debaser? Mm -hmm. Can I make a request on your guys' radio show? Sure. Will you guys play a Debaser by the Pixies? You're going to love it. Okay. Sure, we will. We'll do it. Up next. <laughs>
Okay, Stephen. Well, it's awesome to talk to you, hear about the new music, hear about the inspiration behind the album art. Thanks so much for having me on your show. You guys are really nice. All right. Thanks well, so much. Bye-bye. Stephen Jenkins of Third Eye Blind. Keep it right here on the Mulberry Lane Show. And when we come back, you'll meet classic country music star T.G. Shepard. And we're going to take you to break with the song that Stephen Jenkins asks us to play, Debaser by the Pixies, followed up by Third Eye Blind's current single, Cop vs. Phone Girl. Keep it here on the Mulberry Lane Show. Brought to you by Braddock Finnegan Dermatology. And if the cops go by, throw a piece of Hey baby, have a good night I am out for the good fight And if the cops go by, let the colors go by So hey the kids, hey, hey the kids, hey the kids Alright, up Meet the celebrities on your radio station Back to the Mulberry Lane Show Now, here's Mulberry Lane well, this country legend defined the sound of country music in the 70s and 80s. T.G. Shepard has a voice that makes you feel every word in hits like Last Cheater's Waltz. And when you have a career that includes Elvis giving you your first tour bus, 21 number one country hits, and you were one of the first investors in the nightclubs, guitars, and Cadillacs, you know you're on quite a ride. Now, T.G. is here right now to chat about his latest album, Legendary Friends and Country Duets. <laughs> T.G. Shepard, here today, country legend doing things his way. <laughs> you know, that's a first for me in my 40-year career to be sung onto a show. Ah, glad okay. to hear it. Yeah, <laughs> glad we were the first. Well, Allie and Rachel, it's great to be with you. Okay, Thank now you, likewise. you have had to extend this tour, adding more and more dates, so the fans are demanding more. So what is that like at this point in your career? Well, it's very exciting. It's even more exciting to walk out on a stage and see the people that were there years ago, along with a whole new generation of people who are loving the music of the 80s, 70s and 80s. So it's very exciting. There's kind of a resurgence right now of classic or traditional artists of the 70s and 80s. And we're caught up in that and had to extend our tour because of it. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Great. Now, you were always known as someone who was able to hear, you know, just the best songs, pick those hits. Do you think that's one of the reasons you have more and more people showing up at your shows is these songs are finding a new audience, they're resonating because they're just good songs? Well, you know, I hope so. And I would think that that's probably the case because I think every career, and of course you know this, every career you have to have songs and it all hinges on hit songs, and great songs tend to last forever. And if you've got those kind of songs that will last forever, then your career lasts forever also. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, you mm-hmm. spent some time as a record promoter, and there's a great story about how your first hit was rejected by a bunch of record label executives. So you decided to record it yourself. So share that story. I think it's so awesome. Well, I've, I found this song, and I pushed it to Waylon and to 
uh, Charlie Pride and to uh, there's so many artists that I was working with at the time on RCA. I was a RCA rep, national rep for RCA. No one heard it. They just didn't believe it was a hit. And I kept saying, there's something here. So one night late in the studio, we had time left over for an extra song. And I ran upstairs and opened up the little cassette box. And I played this song. We recorded it. And 12 weeks later, it was number one in the country. So I guess it goes to show you that if, you know, stick to what you believe in. And uh, usually if you have a hunch about something, then you're, you're usually right. What a way to be validated, though, really. Oh, I'll tell you a great story of that song, though, if you've got a second. Sure. Of course, after I recorded it, I sent it out to every major label and got refused. Okay. And then the day that it went number one in Billboard, I went to my mailbox, and I got my Billboard, and then I felt in the box, in the mailbox, there was a little square return of my song. And okay. It was on a little tape. Mm-hmm. And so I opened up the box, and it said, we're sorry at this time. We do not feel that this song is commercial enough for radio. So in one hand, I've got a refusal letter. And in the other hand, I've got Billboard magazine showing at number one. So it was a funny, funny day. That That is is the best validation ever. (laughs) Yes. Now, if that happened today, that would be an awesome Facebook post. (laughs) Wouldn't it? (laughs) The picture of the Billboard number one, the picture rejection letter. Mm Mm-hmm. You're listening to the Mulberry Lane Show. Hanging out with you today, country music superstar, T.G. Shepard. So now, as a record promoter, what did you learn being a record promoter that you brought to your career as an artist? I learned really how tough the business is because you don't just run out here and cut a hit song and have a career. I mean, it's a lot of years of paying dues and learning your craft and becoming a journeyman to the trade. So I really and truly knew what my odds were, having been in the record business side for so long. You know, if I was going to make it, I had to really work hard. I think being in the record business first kind of prepared me for what I was going to be up against to succeed. And I just stayed true to course and kept plowing through, and it happened. Wow. Was there anything you learned not to do, promoting an artist, like how an artist treated people or did things, and, you know, you thought, gosh, I'll never do that? Yes, I did. I learned that from not just the record business, but I also learned it from Elvis that there's not really any room in this business for an ego. We all have them. Don't get me wrong. Everyone has to care about themselves to a certain extent. But if you have too large an ego in the record business, then it can really and truly destroy a career. You have to really and truly remember who you are and where you came from. So I learned early to be nice to people, be excessive, and to be appreciative of of what you have. Now, with all of your success, was there ever a point when you did forget that? Sure. You know, when you first start out and you have those first six or eight important records, which I never thought I'd have more than one, Uh let alone 21 of them. But, you know, you, you would get a little full of yourself. I'm sorry, you really do. You can't help it because it's excitement and mm-hmm. you, you're all of a sudden living the dream that you've dreamed of your whole life and you're caught up in it and you're doing shows with these monster acts that you've been fans of for years. And I was just like a lot of people who are starting out. But once you're in it for a while, you realize that it's a business and you leave the ego on the stage and at the footlights and then you are just like anyone else when you leave the stage Uh yeah you mentioned elvis now you had a true friendship 
with Elvis, and he actually gave you your first tour bus, which kind of propelled you to pursue this. Well, yeah, I met Elvis when I was 15. I was a runaway. I ran away from my home to chase this dream that God has let me catch, and I, I thank him every day for it. God's an important part of my life. And uh, I met Elvis, and I don't know what he saw in me, uh, but he befriended me and took me in. And when he gave me my tour bus on my first record, it come out, Devil in the Bible, which he really loved that record a lot. And he gave me my first tour bus. I sat back and I thought, Elvis Presley just gave me a tour bus. What in the, what, what's going on here? It actually gave me the confidence to go forward because I said to myself, if Elvis Presley believes in me enough to give me a tour bus, maybe I have a chance in this business. So I took it serious after that, really serious. So that was a turning point in your life, another one. Yeah, it really was. He was, he was a great, great friend, a great guy who really had no ego. So do you think your friendship, like how he viewed you, was you know different from his other friendships for him to give you a tour bus? What do you think? Yeah, you- I, I think... I think so. He had a lot of friends, of course, in the business. I mean, and some of the biggest stars in the world were his friends. I mean, mm-hmm. I would look up some days and there would be standing Tom Jones or Frank Sinatra or the Beatles or whoever. Wow. I mean, they all came. He was the Pied Piper. They all came to him. Our relationship was one of true, true friendship. Mm-hmm. And I never wanted anything from him but his friendship. Yeah. And he knew that. He knew that. And he probably appreciated that. I would hope so. I mean, we were very close. Mm -hmm. Country music icon T.G. Shepard here on the Mulberry Lane Show. Keep it right here, because when we come back, you'll hear about T.G.'s latest album that includes a lot of country music legends. She's got that dark hair falling across her shoulders. There's not a man alive that wouldn't want to hold her. Music, celebrities, and everything in between. Back to the Mulberry Lane Show. Now, here's Mulberry Lane. Thanks for keeping it here on the Mulberry Lane Show. You're hearing from T.G. Shepard, country music icon, who's had 21 number one country hits in the 70s and 80s. Let's get back with T.G. Shepard. Your latest album, Legendary Friends and Country Duets. Now, you did a lot of duets with other country greats, Willie Nelson, Lori Morgan, Oak Ridge Boys. So how did this all come together? Well, I hadn't done a, really a commercial album in many, many years. And my wife, Kelly Lang, who is also, I feel, a great singer and songwriter. Matter of fact, she wrote all of Lori Morgan's last album with okay. Lori. Oh, cool. I kept thinking, I didn't want to just go do another album, just to be doing an album. I wanted to make a statement and do something that people would want in their collections forever. So my wife, Kelly, said, why don't you invite some of your friends in? And I said, I I really am scared to do that. And she said, well, why? And I said, because, you know, I love my friends so much. If I invite somebody in that I really care a lot for as a friend and they turn me down, it's going to crush me. (laughs) So I'm really scared that they'll all turn me down. So you were actually fearful of asking them. Yeah, I was. I mean, you know, I called up Willie and Merle Haggard and Jerry Lee Lewis and Ricky Skaggs and Mickey Gilley and B.J. Thomas. The list went on forever. I called 15 artists, and they all came. (laughs) That's so (laughs) awesome. What it did, it just really and truly made me appreciate my career more because these people gave me their time, and they came to record with me with no questions asked. 
Yeah. And it just really made me feel special. Another moment of validation. Yes. I mean, and we all need those moments in our lives. And to have those iconic people come in and sing across the mind from you, look them in the eye, you have to paint yourself going, oh, my Lord, I'm I'm singing for Merle Haggard here or George Jones or... It was, uh, it was incredible. You also filmed a lot of the recording sessions. Yes, we did. We filmed all of the sessions. It, it became a 90-minute documentary, which won the Telly Award for Music Documentary of the Year in Los Angeles. That's so cool. It was very, very special because we've lost some of those great people. Yeah. Like was that Merle's Jones. last recording? Um, no, it was George Jones's last recording. Okay. Wow. Uh, um, Merle had done a lot more after we recorded, but just to have those names, uh, if I never do anything else in my career, I, I know that Legendary Friends and Country Duets was a really and truly milestone in my life and career. And you know, the, the neat thing about it, it's, it was recorded very old school. I mean, it wasn't like you recorded your part in Nashville and sent it to someone else somewhere right. and they put theirs on. I mean, you right. were, like you said looking at each other, singing the song, you know, as it went down. And I just don't know that a lot of albums are recorded that way, especially with such huge names. It took many, many, many years. It's like a six-year project for me to do this Mm -hmm. because of scheduling. I wanted that energy in that studio. I didn't want to piece something together. Now, I did piece the Conway 21 together because Conway's been gone a long time. Uh Uh-huh. But I couldn't have done this album without Conway because he was one of my dearest friends. We were in business together for many years. We did a lot of stuff together in business. Uh And so I was able to take his voice from an old recording and build a whole new track because I didn't want to bother his track because that's sacred to me. And it, it worked. Wow. Now, you mentioned, you know, your business dealings. You've had a theater in the Smoky Mountains. You ran a bed and breakfast, and you opened the nightclub chain Guitars and Cadillacs. So what made you a good business person? You know, a lot of artists also don't have that side. <laughs> well, I didn't win every time, let me tell you. Uh, <laughs> I've lost fortunes in business, but I was able to win it back with other good choices. The Guitars and Cadillacs thing was an incredible thing because the first one was in the Westport District in Kansas City Mm -hmm. and uh, was successful for many, many years. Uh, As far as the bed and breakfast, that's just something that I always loved because I was a Bob Newhart fan and I always watched (laughs) their TV show about, you know. I think the thing that I enjoyed the most in business was when we had our own NASCAR team. I had the T.G. Shepard Folgers race team for seven years and I had Mark Martin as my driver and Jim Richmond and a lot of great people and country music and NASCAR kind of go together. Right. So uh, I don't think I was that great a businessman. I got lucky a lot by picking things that did work, but I paid the price on some things that didn't work. Would you describe yourself as a risk taker? Yeah, I think you have to be in life. Yeah. I think what's the old saying, no pain, no gain. Right. Uh, you, you really have to fall. Uh, fail in some things to really appreciate success when you do have it. You have to have a barometer yeah. to measure it by because if everything was easy, you'd think, oh, everything's easy. Right. But you have to fail and you have to go down and you have to uh, realize that uh, you can't be successful at everything, that there's a price to pay for success when it does come and sometimes uh, you have to fail before becoming successful. So how did you turn around failures mentally? Was that hard for you, or did you just kind of roll with it? I think it's hard for everyone. Mm-hmm. I, I think any time you fail, it, it breeds fear in you to where you don't want to take chances yeah. anymore because you just don't want to keep losing or you can't afford to lose. You may have a family. You know, I had a family. I had a wife and children. And 
and I just uh, I couldn't afford to fail many times. I, I really and truly gained strength through prayer okay. and through friends that encouraged me and through my belief that success would come if you were dedicated. So I think just positive thinking, I practice a thing called the secret. I believe in the law of attraction. I believe that you receive back what you give off. So if you keep giving and you keep working, it has to come back to you in some form. So therefore, uh, I guess just positive thinking really kind of is what saved me and turned me around and kept me going. Okay. Mm-hmm. Country music great. T.G. Shepard here on the Mulberry Lane Show. Now, would you say Kelly Lang, your wife, has the same type of attitude about life? Oh, gosh. We, we have to have positive attitudes in any marriage or any... Yeah. Any pills. My puppy's running around the house. Your dog agrees uh, with you. <laughs> yes. Uh, but my wife is the love of my life. Mm-hmm. And having almost lost her to cancer, really and truly, you have to think positive. You have to believe that you'll get through the fire and through the tough times and that there will be better times. And I say this right now to anyone who's listening who's having a tough time in life. It does get better. Just hang tight, hang on, and believe that the good days will come. Um, with Kelly and I, at 34 years old, 33 years old, she was diagnosed with cancer, breast cancer, and mm-hmm. didn't expect her to make it. Wow. And um, so she was a, a good positive thinker, and it prioritized our life. It put our priorities in line to live a better life. And so many times she's told me that it, it was actually a blessing. Uh-huh. Uh, so, yeah, my wife Kelly is a, a very positive force in my life and her own career, too. Yes. Yeah. Great message. Now you are performing, you're on tour. What can fans expect from a T.G. Shepherd show. <laughs> well, I have an enormous amount of fun on stage. I'm, I'm, I love to laugh. I think laughter is the greatest medicine in the world for whatever ails anyone. And our shows are funny. We have a lot of fun stuff that happens on our shows. In my shows, you'll see a guy on stage who's living the dream and who lets the people in the audience know that. Mm-hmm. And that I'm appreciative that they're there. I will jump off stage and go right out into the crowd and and get as close to the people as I possibly can because I, I do love the people that made the magic happen. And in my shows, they're not planned shows. We never know what's going to happen. It starts and it goes and then it ends. And I let the people in the audience dictate what they want. Okay. I mean, have you always done that? Done it that way? Yes, okay. I have. I, I mean, I'll be in the middle of a show and somebody will holler out a song and I'll go, hang on. And I'll do it. I'll do That's it. that <laughs> risk-taking personality there. Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but, you know, I, I think having fun with your shows keeps it from getting redundant and boring. After 40 years of doing this, I'd get bored doing shows if I didn't find a way to make every show seem to you and fresh. Uh-huh. Right. So, and if it's that way for you, it's definitely that way for the audience. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, TG, we want to thank you so much for joining our show today, and thank you for sharing so much of yourself with us. Oh, I, I enjoyed this so much. I, I hope that we can do it again sometime. And you both are just tremendous. I am huge fans now, okay? I really am. Oh, thank, thank you. you so much. Thank, and thank when you, you have new things out, please come back. We'd love to have you back oh. on. We will. Thank you so, so much. T.G. Shepard, classic country artist here on the Mulberry Lane Show. When we come back, get to know New York Times bestselling author Lee Bardugo. Keep hanging out with us on the Mulberry Lane Show, brought to you by Braddock Finnegan Dermatology. Big Lee.
little or short at all Wish I could keep them all We've got you covered. The Mulberry Lane Show. Now, here's Mulberry Lane. Well, you may know her from her best-selling young adult trilogy, The Grisha Trilogy, or the first book in the duology, Six of Crows. Author Lee Bardugo, well-loved by her fans and readers, is here to chat about the sequel to Six of Crows called Crooked Kingdom. Lee Bardugo on the show, Crooked Kingdom, Six of Crows, yeah, yeah. That is the best. Thank you, guys. <laughs> oh, it's awesome having you here. Good to be here. Okay, so now Crooked Kingdom takes off where Six of Crows left off, which is set in the same world as the Grisha trilogy, but a different location. So how do you go about creating this imaginary universe? Did the story or the world come to you first? For me, it really starts with a story, and it starts with the characters. I wrote the Grisha trilogy starting with an outline that, for me, was really more about power and sense of order in the world than okay. a sense of place. And the world really came together through research and over the course of revising the draft. Okay. And Six of Crows was a little different because I'd established the world already, but I also needed to make it accessible for people who hadn't read the trilogy because you don't have to read the trilogy to read Six of Crows. Okay. And it was a little bit different because I'd been imagining this place for so long and really had it in my head while I was writing the trilogy as well. Okay. You basically live there. Uh, I'm glad I don't live there because there's a good chance I would get mugged and have my pocket picked, but you know. Okay, so now this story is told from multiple points of view of six different characters. So as far as keeping track of the characters, their thoughts, their points of view... Is that something that takes a really organized mind to do, or because you know the characters, it just flows? I mean, it's possible that it would be easier for an organized mind. I wouldn't know because I don't have an organized mind. That's good to hear. I'm not like that. I'm one of those people who has a whiteboard and notes all over every okay. surface and you know things taped to my wall. But I will say um, I wrote Six of Crows and Crooked Kingdom in a program called Scrivener okay. that allowed me to color code the POVs. It's really helpful if you need to jump around a draft pretty frequently. Okay. So that was sort of how I kept a handle on all those different stories. Gotcha. Now, in creating your own world, you kind of get to decide which things from the actual real world enter into your world. And, you know, opinions, events, was there thought into, you know, that's not coming in my world? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, that's really, that's an interesting question. I mean, I can say that we do make those choices. I have LGBT characters in my books, and in my world, it's completely... Nobody has any prejudice against that at all. It's okay. a completely just accepted thing. Uh -huh. And, you know, that was a particular choice. Um, there were also choices about, you know, you know, the fact is that in the real world, gang life and um, criminal life is incredibly sexist really a frightening place to be for, for young women. Mm -hmm. And so I was a little more egalitarian because I didn't want to create a world where we had the same level of sexism and misogyny in that criminal underground. So okay. you have somebody like Inej who definitely has to keep sort of fighting for respect in her crew, but she is definitely able to exist in that world. Equal opportunity criminals. Exactly. <laughs> You're listening to the Mulberry Lane Show right now, chatting with Lee Bardugo, author of the brand new book, Crooked Kingdom, which follows up Six of Crows. Now, as an artist and a writer, and you're also in a band, so you're obviously highly creative. How susceptible are you to the praise your books get and also criticisms you might hear? Mm, I mean, 
Here's the thing. When I have a new book come out, I read reviews. I spend a lot of time on social media. And then I try to get away from that because the fact is it gets in your head. Even the good stuff is pretty poisonous to creativity because then all you're thinking about is how to recreate that. I always say that scared artists make bad art, and Mm -hmm. I think if you're constantly thinking about pleasing people or what people think they want, you're not going to write a good story. How do you get out of that mindset if you find yourself there? The big thing, and this is something I recommend to all creative people, is to get offline. Take a hiatus, and don't be on social media. Take the apps off of your phone. You know, if you have to check in, then check in for a half hour every day, but really protect yourself and your process and creative thinking, because all those voices are just going to add to the critical voices in your head. Yeah. Got enough of those in your own head. Exactly. (laughs) No, I love how the low point in your life kind of birthed your writing career for you. So what can you share about that time that allowed you to blossom in this new direction? Look, I had a lot of jobs before I had my dream job. And, you know, when my dad passed away, I left a pretty reasonable... I used to write movie trailers for a living. So I left this very good day job that was very suited to my abilities. I quit my job, and I went into a field I knew nothing about. And I became a makeup and special effects artist. And I have to say, even though it was probably a crazy thing to do in terms of finances and things like, oh, say, health insurance, (laughs) it was a really good thing in a lot of ways because instead of being tired from writing all day and flexing that muscle all day, even though I would go to set and be on my feet for 10 or 12 hours at a time, I would come home physically exhausted but really ready to write. And I think also I had just, I was in a place where, you know, it was kind of do or die. I was in a terrible marriage and I was completely broke and I was in a career that I wasn't particularly good at and didn't enjoy. And I had always wanted to be a writer, but I'd never managed to finish a book. And I made a deal with myself that I was going to do it. I was going to write the worst book ever, but it was going to be done. And the first draft of Shadow and Bone was, in fact, absolutely terrible, but then I had something to work with and there was enough good stuff in there to excavate and turn into a book I could be proud of. Now, did you seek out mentors at that time? No. I mean, you know, to a certain extent, I think a few people get very lucky and find mentors or fairy godmothers to take them under their wing and be like, hey kid, you got moxie, but (laughs) my life has not been particularly like that. I was 35 when I wrote my first book and it was really about getting the story on the page and then I queried blind. I didn't know anybody. I went out and made a list of agents And I came off the slush pile, and luckily enough, Joanna Volpe signed me, and she has been my champion since then, and I could not be luckier. And what advice would you have to that young female writer that envisions having a career like you? You know, my advice is not just to the young ones, because like I said, I was 35, and I think we have this idea that you have to make it when you're, you know, still spry and dewy, and you really don't. As long as you have a story to tell, people are always going to want to hear it if it's a good one. So my advice to you is, one, there's no expiration date on your talent, and two, finish a draft. Stop talking about the idea or researching or planning and just get the story onto the page, messy, ugly, trite, whatever it is, but get a full first draft onto the page and you'll go back and fix it later. I love that advice. And I like what you're saying because it's almost like it all clicked for you when you made promises to yourself that you were going to do this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you have to commit. Writing is not always fun. Even when it's your calling, even when it's what you've always dreamed of. The days when you feel like a genius are the best days, but there are plenty of days when you feel like it's not only a job, but a a job you're not very good at, Mm -hmm. and you still have to do it on those days anyway. Yeah. So now having made movie trailers and done the makeup, do you envision these books on the big screen? 
I mean, sure. I would love to see these books adapted uh, for television or film. We're waiting to see the right person to come along. And okay. maybe that's silly, but, you know, there's a lot of really bad adaptations out there. So we're hoping to place it in good hands. Uh-huh. And then what do you hope that the reader will take away after reading Crooked Kingdom? You know, I hope that people find whatever they need in the book. For me, reading was really an escape. It wasn't just a place to go to for wish fulfillment, but it was a place where the stakes were high and where, you know, I got to live other lives for a short period of time. So if my books can be that for somebody, then I'm perfectly happy. And if they come out on the other side feeling a little stronger, I wouldn't mind that either. And who doesn't want to feel a little stronger in life, you know? Yeah. All right, well, Lee, we want to thank you so much for sharing your vision and your art. Great to hear about how you approach your craft, and thank you for sharing that with us. My pleasure. Thank you guys for having me. Author Lee Bardugo with her new book, Crooked Kingdom, the brand new sequel to her best-selling book, Six of Crows. Lee, thanks for sharing your journey on our show today. Mm-hmm. Who else do we need to thank, Rachel? Well, a big radio hug to Stephen Jenkins of Third Eye Blind. Woo. Thanks for bringing your latest album, We Are Drugs, to the show today. And sharing with us your approach to songwriting. That's right. And finally, girls, we gotta thank country music legend T.G. Shepard. T.G., your stories about the music industry and being rejected before you had your first hit. That was one awesome story. And I think that's really going to inspire people to go with their guts. And keep going. Yeah, exactly. So thanks for stopping by today. Well, our time is almost up here on the Mulberry Lane Show. And first, we want to thank you for joining us here every weekend. And on this Easter weekend, we wish you a joyful Easter season full of hope, renewal, and rebirth. Because He is risen. And remember to meet us here, same time, same place, next weekend. Right here on the Mulberry Lane Show, brought to you by Braddock Finnegan Dermatology. Bo, stay happy and stay blessed. Allie, don't forget to be awesome. Rachel, that's a wrap. See you next week. Stay here.